Bienvenue and welcome back to the Land of Desire. I'm your host, Diana, and it's great to be back in the States. Thank you so much to those of you who reached out to say hello and wish me bon voyage. My mom had an amazing first time in Paris, and I'll need to get around to updating my Paris recommendations page soon. In case you missed it, I ended up doing an impromptu interview with Oliver of the delightful podcast, The Earful Tower. We chatted about life in an ancient city where layers and layers of history stack up on top of one another like so many sediments in a rock. You can hear our interview in his episode, Fascinating French History, which aired June 3rd, 2019. Thanks so much for having me on your show, Oliver. If you haven't checked out the Earful Tower yet, it's great. I do have one last announcement. Uh, At the end of this episode, I will be announcing a very special upcoming milestone. So keep listening all the way to the end. Okay, now that I'm back and officially unpacked, it's time to pick up where we left off in the middle of our series on that very great lady, Notre Dame Cathedral. Since I don't particularly feel like producing a 28-part series about every aspect of the Great Cathedral's 800-year history, I'm skipping around a bit. Because to me, what makes Notre Dame Cathedral so interesting isn't just its architecture, it's her relationship to the city around her. What happens in a wildly inconstant, rapidly changing city when a building in its heart stands more or less unchanged for almost a millennia? What kind of relationship does a city's people develop with a monument, and how does that relationship change as the city's people change? So in this series, we're skipping around. We're viewing Notre Dame from the perspective of Paris itself, in whatever stage she was in at that time. In the first part of our series, we reimagined ancient provincial Paris, a struggling backwater without a strong identity of its own, trying to find stability. Just before the end of the first millennium, Gothic architecture blossomed across France, proving to the world that this region was no longer stuck in the Dark Ages, but was actually thriving, civilized, and worthy of attention. In the second part of this series, we learned about the construction of Notre Dame Cathedral during the Crusades, at a time when France struggled to assert its importance on the world stage, with mixed results. When King Louis VII married Eleanor of Aquitaine, only for her to leave him for his greatest nemesis, Henry II of England, it planted the seeds for troubles that would eventually consume the armies of Europe. But the collapse of Louis and Eleanor's marriage, and Louis's subsequent desperation for a new wife and an heir to the throne, planted another kind of seed. In a desperate plea for a son, Louis VII did what any king of his age would do. He made an offering to God. He would give his capital city, the seat of all French power, the cathedral her people deserved. And it worked. Louis's son, Philippe Auguste, and Notre Dame Cathedral both made their way into the world within a few years of each other. Under Philippe's rule, France transformed from an early feudal nation into the most powerful country in Europe, and Paris grew into a beautiful, technologically advanced, enormous capital city with a glorious, glittering cathedral at its heart. But of course, the good times don't last forever. 
And in this episode, we're moving to the Paris of the 14th century, enjoying the glow of her first golden age, living in splendor, and absolutely convinced that the good times are here to stay. But in fact, the good times are about to end. And Notre Dame, the heart of the city's holy life, is about to find herself at the center of a terrible and deadly curse. In 1285, most Parisians would have considered themselves lucky. They'd enjoyed a period of unprecedented prosperity, mostly thanks to the rule of Louis IX, or, as we know him today, Saint Louis, the only French king to have an NFL team named after him. Saint Louis was a complete nut job, even for the time, and he liked to wear a hair shirt and spend literally hours praying before bed every single night. His contemporaries described St. Louis as bowed by fasting and mortification, and he liked to do things like wash the feet of his noblemen, who were unimpressed but probably grateful for the spa treatment. There's no way a guy this religious was going to make it through the 13th century without going on a holy crusade. So, sure enough, he did just that, to the great annoyance of the French people who were getting really tired of holy crusades. Luckily, the same devotion to duty and ability to focus, which allowed Louis to say a billion Ave Marias every night, also gave him the acumen to build France into a great nation. Before it could become a great nation, it had to become a big one. Louis picked up the territories of Aquitaine and Provence, and he used the newfound wealth of these regions to fund his projects. With his trademark attention and care, Louis created a series of political institutions which would administer the country for centuries to come, things like the Grand Conseil and the Parlement. Saint Louis created institutions like the National Archive. He ran the country on a reasonable budget. He reformed the justice system. He built the gorgeous Saint-Chapelle a few blocks away from Notre Dame, and he became one of the world's great patrons of the arts. In short, Louis IX turned France into a superpower, with Europe's strongest army, her wealthiest kingdom, and her most influential culture. Alas, Louis had even bigger dreams, and eventually that hair shirt got to itching, and he made his way out on yet another crusade, one which would be his last. Within a few months, the great Saint Louis died, and he was carted home to be buried in Notre Dame Cathedral. For centuries, historians assumed Louis died of some camp disease like dysentery. But as it turns out, earlier this very week, an international team of researchers just announced a very different finding. As one forensic pathologist explained, his diet wasn't very balanced. Saintly Louis did not eat his vegetables, and it turns out his skeleton was riddled with traces of scurvy. The now glorious and powerful throne of France passed on to Louis's son, Philip the Bold, whose nickname sounds like a prank because Philip was insignificant in every way. Philip the Bold couldn't command an army, he didn't have any opinions of his own, and if he did, nobody listened to them. Philip the Bold didn't accomplish very much before dying after 15 uneventful years on the throne. We won't waste any more time on him. Ever the unimaginative, Philip's son was also named Philip. And it's this new Philip, 
Philip the Fair, grandson of Saint Louis, who became the King of France in 1285. He inherited a country which was large, rich, well-armed, culturally influential, and well-run. Thanks to his grandfather's skillful rule, all the organs of public life, like those of a living body, had come into existence, had found their place, and on the whole were there to retain it. The new king was young, fierce, energetic, and ambitious. France's future was looking bright. No one had any idea what was coming. Right from the start, Philip's greatest downfall was money. Money flowed through his hands like water. Philip's budget was outrageous. When Philip the Fair wanted to acquire territory, he didn't conquer it with an army. He just bought it outright at the kind of price that you would think another country would charge for, you know, a chunk of itself. When Philip wanted to leave a mark on Paris, he didn't pave the roads or fix an old monument. He raised entire neighborhoods and tried to build the most extravagant palace he could in its place. Philip tried every trick in the book to raise money. He created new taxes. He raised the taxes that already existed. He screwed around with the gold coins, which started getting real skinny. He enacted severe punishments against tax evaders and counterfeiters. He expelled the Jews who had just started returning to France after the last time, and he stole all their money and belongings, just like last time. He began taxing businesses, but it just wasn't enough. At last, Philip was left with one last drastic fundraising option, an option no king had ever dared to touch. Philip the Fair wanted God's gold. Philip, grandson of the only canonized king in French history, sent an army after the Pope. Young people, so disrespectful to their ancestors. Within a month of the attack, the Pope was dead, and Philip worked like crazy to get a pro-French replacement Pope, and boy did he succeed. Meet Pope Clement V. Pope Clement knew exactly what side his bread was buttered on, and he was totally happy to call that last pope a worthless heretic and sodomite and whatever else the king wanted him to say. With a French pope rubber stamping all of Philip's requests for holy gold, Philip saw an opportunity to tap that last source of wealth sitting right in his backyard. With the approval of his new bestie, Pope Clement V, Philip the Fair set out to steal the money of the Knights Templar. It would be the worst mistake of his life. The Rue Vieille du Temple sits in the middle of the Marais, just a few blocks away from Notre Dame. Today, the street holds my favorite cafe in Paris, and I often found myself sitting there wondering just which temple the street name referred to. Sitting as it does in a traditionally Jewish neighborhood, which is still filled with kosher bakeries and butchers, I'd always assumed the street's name referred to one of the many synagogues which still dot the area. But in fact, the Rue Vieille du Temple is actually named after one of the last traces of an institution so powerful it rivaled the royal palace, whose members inspired awe and terror in anyone who crossed their path the infamous Knights Templar. 
Headquartered in an enormous fortified castle, the Knights Templar were a remnant of the First Crusade. Charged by Louis VII to defend the poor pilgrims of Christ, the Knights Templar got their start protecting pilgrims from ambushes near holy sites. Eventually, they made their way onto the battlefield, where they wreaked havoc, and they collected enormous, fabled treasures along the way. The Knights Templar established a vast network of international real estate and banking, and they were so efficient in their money management that when St. Louis got himself held captive during one of his ill-fated crusades, the Templars were able to pay off the last bit of his ransom with just the money that they happened to have on board the ships that were closest to him. In other words, the Knights Templar were so rich they could ransom a king with whatever they dug out from under the couch cushions. By the reign of Philip the Fair, the Knights Templar had gone a little bit to seed. Sure, they were still famous and they were very, very rich, but in an aging, retired soccer player kind of way, you know, past their prime, but in denial about it. When the Knights Templar had the nerve to remind Philip the Fair of his outstanding debts, and worse yet, when they refused to lend the king the money he wanted at the rate that he wanted, Philip the Fair and his new pope decided it was time to strike. One night, the pope's henchmen broke into the great Templar castle and arrested everyone inside, while the king's men swooped through behind them to seize all the knight's treasures. While the knight's Templar fortune disappeared into Philip's bank vaults, the knight's Templars themselves disappeared into cellars, where they were tortured to death. In the months and years to come, Philip and Clement burned hundreds of Templars at the stake, until finally, in 1319, the Grand Master of the Knights Templar went on trial. For seven years, he'd been tortured in the cellar without breaking, and the king and pope had run out of patience. So that March, Philip the Fair constructed a grand scaffold on the front steps of Notre Dame Cathedral. Standing on the scaffold, the Grand Master and his associates shouted out their innocence, and they denied anything they'd ever said in the cellars. Enraged, Philip ordered the men be taken off the scaffold and burned at the stake instead. As flames consumed the Grand Master, he is said to have uttered a terrible curse. Pope Clement, iniquitous judge and cruel executioner, I adjure you to appear in forty days' time before God's tribunal. And you, King of France, will not live to see the end of this year, and heaven's retribution will strike down your accomplices and destroy your posterity. Within minutes, the Knights Templar were finished, but their curse continued ringing for a hundred years. Here's the Cliff Notes version of Philip the Fair's terrible, horrible, no good, very bad reign. In 40 days, the Pope did indeed die of a mysterious disease. Philip installed his three sons in a luxurious castle, and all three of them moved in with their wives. Within a few months, Paris discovered that at least two of the wives had been using that castle as a hookup spot for their boy toys. The king proceeded to execute the boy toys in truly disgusting, extremely public fashion, and his two daughters-in-law were made to watch before they were exiled to a distant castle. Meanwhile, the king's horrible sons tried to move on from the scandal. 
one son got divorced from his adulterous wife who went into a nunnery. She was the lucky one because another son didn't feel like going to all that trouble, so he simply smothered his wife to death between two mattresses and remarried about five minutes later. That left the third son, whose wife was acquitted of any involvement in the scandal. Her husband was happy to forgive and forget, and years later, when he became king, he gave that wife a lovely gift— Yes, he gave her the scandalous castle that had killed her sisters-in-law, and then he forced her to live in it for the rest of her life. I feel like it really puts all of our family feuds into perspective. Within a year, Philip the Fair had died, and a new Game of Thrones began. Son number one, who couldn't be trusted with mattresses, ruled France for all of 18 months before dying of pneumonia. Son number two claimed the throne, locked his wife up in the Bad Vibes castle, and then died of tuberculosis after a measly six years. Finally, son number three, whose wife got thee to a nunnery, ascended to the throne with his new wife, who produced three daughters before dying after another six years on the throne. Within 14 years of the Grandmaster's curse, the 300-year-old Capetian dynasty was snuffed out. And it got worse. After the throne passed sideways to a cousin, Philip the Fair's only daughter made a claim for the throne. Trouble was, she was married to the King of England, and that skirmish over the throne is now known as the Hundred Years' War, just to give you some sense of scale. The good times were fading fast, but they were about to get worse. While the king and his sons were busy marrying, murdering, remarrying, and dying, Paris was exploding in size. The pavilion in front of Notre Dame, where the grandmaster and his accomplices had been condemned, was now completely filled by market stalls and squalid huts. The Great Wall of Paris, built by Philippe Auguste back in the day, now squeezed the population in like a too tight belt, and Parisians stacked on top of one another, building cheap and building fast. This was an era of cheap, lousy tenement housing, not temples to God and country. If you'd like to see the glorious architecture of 14th century France, the only bit that's left in Paris are a couple of crooked, timbered houses on the right bank, which Oliver and I discussed on that Earful Tower interview. Everything was chaos. The tiny ersatz streets mushrooming up in the night didn't even have names. It would take you hours of wandering to find anywhere you wanted in Paris. Wealthier Parisians kept out the city's stench by tossing fragrant herbs and grasses on the ground every few months, but the poor made do with old straw filled with fleas and dog waste. Parisians just couldn't breathe, choking on their own sewage, stepping on one another's necks, running over one another in the streets. Children were a burden, and they were abandoned on the front steps of Notre Dame in growing numbers every year. The city was reaching a breaking point, and in the summer of 1348, a few decades after Philip the Fair's death, halfway through the century-long war he'd caused, that breaking point arrived. Across the street from Notre Dame Cathedral sat the Hôtel Dieu, the largest and oldest hospital in Paris. 
The leaders of Notre Dame Cathedral oversaw the administration and funding of the hospital, which was staffed day to day by nuns. Founded to care for poor people, dying people, old people, and those children who kept getting abandoned on the front steps, Hotel Dieu was already overcrowded by 1348. The hospital offered just under 300 beds and cared for about 1,200 people per year, and that was nothing compared to the 20,000 beggars living in Paris streets at the time. Despite everybody's best efforts, the hospital wards were filthy. Without ventilation, often without windows, and the Seine next door brought damp and decay inside. There was no heating, and the only cleaning seems to have been very energetic sweeping. We've still got the 14th century receipts for an annual order of 1,300 brooms. It's important to understand that people didn't come to a hospital in the 14th century so that they could receive medical care and get better. They came to the hospital to get warm, to get fed, or to get buried. If you were a patient at the Hotel Dieu in 1348, you kicked off your stay by confessing your sins. Next, you stripped down and handed over your clothes to a nun for washing, then climbed naked into bed with three or four strangers. Nobody cared what was wrong with you, but they grouped you together based on how close you seemed to death. So, for example, if you'd been kicked in the head by a horse and you looked pretty close to death, you might be sharing a bed with someone who was dying of dysentery and someone else who'd been stabbed. Fun! If you somehow managed to recover from whatever brought you to the hospital in the first place, you were required to stay an extra week to make sure you really were better. But of course, you'd probably spend that week picking up new diseases from your bedmates, and the whole process would begin again. If you died, and it was pretty likely that you died, they'd sell your clothes off at auction. The odds are nearly impossible that you would ever, at any time, see a doctor. In October 1347, in the city of Theodosia, located in the Black Sea near modern Ukraine, A handful of boats pulled slowly into port. When the dock workers made their way over to the boats to help unload the hold, they found the sailors dead and dying, slumped over the oars. Many sailors were covered in huge black boils, and those who weren't already dead were spending their last miserable moments vomiting, coughing until their eyelids turned blue, and fainting. The bubonic plague had arrived in Europe. Europeans had heard rumors for years of a pestilence spreading across Asia, one which would later become known as the Black Death, a pestilence which killed everyone in its path. But they didn't pay much attention to it until the disease arrived on their doorstep. Within months of the plague's entry into Theodosia, another plague ridden boat entered, this time into Marseille. From there, the plague marched up through Bordeaux, then to Lyon, then into Rouen. Rouen is a 60 days' journey from Paris on foot. Somewhere in Rouen, one of the locals read the signs and fled towards Paris. The plague hopped a ride with them, and exactly 60 days after the plague arrived in Rouen, it crossed through the Great Wall of Paris and introduced itself to the 200,000 people. Inside. According to Jean de Venette, a friar living in the left bank at the time, 
In the August of that year, a very large and bright star was seen in the west of Paris after vespers, when the sun was still shining but beginning to set. While this comet shone overhead, rats scurried along underfoot, nestling into the reeds and straw on the floor, depositing death everywhere they went. Most people who got sick died. Most people who died died quickly. You could catch the plague through contact if a flea bit you, and you die within a few days. You could also catch the plague through the air if a sick person coughed on you, and you die within one day or two. Finally, you could catch the plague by touching infected blood, and you die within a few hours before you'd even had time to display any symptoms. In an isolated village, the plague could kill everyone it was going to kill within four to six months. In a city like Paris, the plague would sweep through, retreat in the winter when the rats disappeared underground, only to reemerge in the spring and sweep through the city again. The plague left behind entire villages of vacant buildings, and all of those haphazard, shoddy homes that overcrowded Paris had been building, all of them fell quickly into ruin and decay. Every morning, new piles of bodies stacked up in front of these now empty houses. The normal operations of the city stopped, just because there were no more bureaucrats to operate them. With one third of the royal notaries dead, Paris couldn't even collect her own taxes. Parisians trying to escape the horror in the city confronted more nightmares on the road. They'd see fields of sky-high wheat lining the roads, left uncut by the peasants, because the peasants had simply dropped dead in the field. What was the point? There was no escape. Before long, the city had descended into anarchy. The Black Death turned the world upside down. Nothing had meaning anymore. Doing the right thing killed you, and the only way to survive was to reject the foundational relationships and responsibilities of society. As Boccaccio recorded in his great Decameron, fathers and mothers refused to visit or tend their very children as if they had not been theirs. As one cardinal in Avignon wrote, the sick are treated like dogs by their families. They put food and drink next to the sick bed and then flee the house. Neither kinsmen nor friends visit the sick. Priests do not hear the confessions of the sick or administer the sacraments to them. Conditions were no better in Paris, as Friar Jean recorded. The young were more likely to die than the elderly and did so in such numbers that burials could hardly keep pace. Those who fell ill lasted little more than two or three days, but died suddenly, as if in the midst of health. In many towns and villages, the result was that the cowardly priests took themselves off, leaving the performance of spiritual offices to the regular clergy, who tended to be more courageous. Pope Clement the Sixth, who might have done better than to choose to carry on the name of the guy who got cursed by the Knights Templar, was completely overwhelmed. Jean explained, Pope Clement the Sixth mercifully gave the confessors in numerous cities and villages the power to absolve the sins of the dying, so that as a result they died the more happily, leaving much of their land and goods to churches or religious orders, since their rightful heirs had predeceased them. Pope Clement himself wasn't exactly a great model of selfless sacrifice.
On the orders of his doctor, the Pope spent plague summers sitting between two enormous roaring fireplaces kept raging around the clock in his apartment. As it turned out, the Pope's doctor was on to something. The unbearable and agonizing heat kept away any contagious visitors and flea-bearing rats. As for the king, well, what king? King Philip VI was that cousin who inherited the French throne sideways after all of Philip the Fair's sons all died out. Nicknamed Philip the Fortunate for his genetic lottery ticket, Philip's wife was not so lucky. After she died from the plague, Philip displayed incredible leadership qualities by getting the hell out of Dodge and hiding out in Normandy until the epidemic was over. So, France suffered through this apocalyptic death spiral on her own, with her religious leadership roasting itself at home and her political leadership holed up in the countryside. Any survivors wandered around, dazed and shell-shocked. Men and women, wrote one witness, wandered around as if mad, with all of their livestock wandering in the streets because no one had any inclination to concern themselves about the future. As one memoir recorded with characteristic bluntness for the times, charity was dead. Every social tie unraveled. Every bond of love or loyalty was broken. Was there anyone decent left alive? Didn't anyone in Paris have courage or honor or love? So high was the mortality at the Hôtel Dieu in Paris, wrote Friar Jean, our witness on the left bank, that for a long time more than 500 dead were carried daily with great devotion to carts in the cemetery of the Holy Innocents in Paris for burial. Yet the daily horror taking place wasn't enough to break down the community inside, because within the hospital walls an army of nurses provided round-the-clock care. With no understanding of what caused the disease and no way to offer any kind of effective relief or cure, the best the nuns of the Hôtel Dieu could offer was humanity and grace. The nuns couldn't offer morphine, but they could offer food and water. They couldn't cure you, but they could make sure that you were administered with last rites, and so you could die knowing that your affairs were in order. You would be buried in a mass grave, but at least you would be buried." In a world where parents abandoned children and priests abandoned their flock, the nuns of the Hôtel Dieu would stay by your side until the very end. Even while the king himself struggled to collect money to run the country, Notre Dame Cathedral kept money flowing to the hospital, along with food, brooms, and most precious of all, more nuns. Nobody was under any impression that the nurses would be spared. They succumbed to the plague at the same rate as everybody else. The miracle was not that nuns lived through the Black Death. It was that they died, and other nuns volunteered to step into their place. Who were these women who demonstrated courage when so many others fled? Medieval records provide clues about their origins. French nurses at the time were often nicknamed Penitence or Fille Repentier, that is, fallen women. Many French nurses got their start as beggars or prostitutes, relying on the Hôtel Dieu for food and shelter. Instead of leaving, many women rededicated their lives to the holy order serving those like themselves. Life at the hospital was hard enough, 
But during the plague, things grew worse. With so much contagion and patient turnover, the laundry room was in use 24 hours a day. From time to time, the nurses might be asked to pay a house call on a wealthy patron, but otherwise, they never really left the hospital grounds. Not that life was much better outside the hospital walls anyway. From 5 a.m. until 7 p.m. every day, the nurses spent their time bathing, comforting, and feeding the crowds of dying plague victims, keeping them warm and helping them find their way to the bathroom, which was impossible at night. It would be a hundred years before the nurses would receive a lantern to light their way. Despite the hardships and the inevitable danger, when the rest of Parisian society seemed to crumble— Notre Dame kept its cathedral doors and its hospital open, and the nuns kept everything running. The sisters endured with cheerfulness and without repugnance the stench, the filth, and the infections of the sick so insupportable to others that no other form of penitence could be compared to the species of martyrdom. As Friar Jean noted with great tenderness, watching from across the Seine, a very great number of the saintly sisters, not fearing to die, nursed the sick in all sweetness and humility, with no thought of honor. Now they rest in peace with Christ. When I first started thinking about the long history of Notre Dame and its relationship to the city of Paris, the Black Death stood out to me immediately as a point of transition. Prior to the 1348 epidemic, Notre Dame spent most of its existence under construction or hosting important state functions, or occasionally executions. But Notre Dame is more than a glorified reception hall or a royal court. It's a house of God, and it's a house of service. While Notre Dame always offered pomp and circumstance at the right occasion— the Black Death highlighted the way in which the cathedral also offered comfort and care and spiritual peace to the city's residents. At a time when church clergy were abandoning their flocks and forsaking their most important duties, the cathedral and her hospital opened their doors and fulfilled their obligations to the most desperate members of the community. Notre Dame is an iconic building, an architectural masterpiece, a center of historical significance. But it is also, at its most essential part, a neighborhood church. When times were good, Notre Dame was there to show off and dazzle visitors. But when times were bad, Notre Dame was there too, offering shelter, mercy, and prayers for a better future. Looking at the burned-out rubble of Notre Dame in person last month, I remembered more than ever that Notre Dame is an organ of the civic body. Then, as now, she pushed up right against the narrow streets and shop fronts, completely embedded in the noise and mayhem of the city. Our Lady is inseparable from the city which surrounds her, and vice versa. As one architectural historian wrote, the medieval church carried with it a message that the anchor of the city, the place that gave it meaning and connected it to heaven, was public. Here in the shadows of the church is where babies were abandoned and plague victims tolerated. Here is where you could beg for help if you were desperate. At the heart of the city, the transition zone between earth and heaven was a promise of empathy. During the 14th century, when the last thread of community seemed ready to snap, Notre Dame, 
her leaders, and her tireless nuns and nurses kept the city alive. Now, Paris has an opportunity to return the favor. Thanks for listening to the Land of Desire. Guess what? It's that time of year. The Land of Desire is turning three. Can you believe it? Three years, 50 episodes, and half a million downloads later. I'd like to celebrate by hearing from all of you. I want to do another Q&A episode. So over the course of the next few weeks, go ahead and ask me anything. I'll create a thread on the show's Facebook page, but you can also feel free to send me a message through the show's website, www.thelandofdesire.com, or you can message me on Twitter. Ask me about a past episode, or about the production of the show, or heck, ask me about my trip, or my favorite French snacks. Whatever your questions might be, I can't wait to share my favorites with everyone else. Thank you for three amazing years, a project that has gone beyond my wildest dreams, and all the kindness you've shared with me along the way. Until next time, au revoir!